Hello, everyone. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers the global war on terror, which we call the Long War. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And today, my co-host and friend and colleague, Caleb Weiss, who is a senior researcher at the Bridgeway Foundation and also an editor at FDD's Long War Journal. He joins us, and we're going to do a Basically, take a swing around the horn or the vast crescent of the global jihad, you know, starting from West Africa and going all the way into Southeast Asia. Caleb, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you for having me again. Although I am a co-host oh. now, so I don't know if I should yeah, be no. thanking yeah, for you again. Don't have to thank me. Okay. Yeah, you're just here. You're you're you are. You are on the team. Well, let's get started, Caleb. Uh, a lot of interest. It's, this is a long time coming. We had a little pause in, in the podcast, and we're going to get it back on track. Um, and Caleb and I were talking, and, you know, when Caleb and I talk. It's, uh, there's, you know, five-minute conversations turn into 45-minute conversations. We always say, yeah, it's a quick phone call, but it's never a quick phone call. It, it never is. And then we're like, damn, why didn't we just record that? So that's what we're here doing today. So, um, well, you know, a lot of interesting developments in Syria, um, of course, in Afghanistan, Pakistan. I, you know, have to drag me kicking and screaming to talk about it uh, in the Sahel uh, and Somalia as well. And if we get lucky and there's enough time, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take a look, look and see what I, um, Islamic State Central African province is doing and, and some other things as well. Um, we'll put that on the hopeful list. It depends on how quick this goes. So, Caleb, let's start off. Um, Syria, a lot of interesting developments there. Uh, U.S. Central Command announced yet another helicopter raid uh, that targeted a senior Islamic State official. Uh, he allegedly was responsible for external plotting in Europe as well as in the region. And uh, I believe they got him in Aleppo. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, it was in Aleppo, which is kind of significant because most – U.S. raids, or at least the raids that they've announced in the past, you know, few months, have been in northeast Syria, so like Hasaka, Deir ez Um But then, of course, you know, the high-profile raids that have happened in the past against, you know, senior IS leadership has been in Idlib. Um, so the fact that they've done something in Aleppo, you know, northwest Syria is, is sort of significant. And I think that, you know, the the brief background they gave on this guy, which they identified him as Abdul Hadi Muhammad Haji Ali. Um, but they only gave the name and sort of, you know, a vague description of what he was responsible for, which was saying that he was responsible for attack plotting in Europe uh, and throughout the region, but really didn't give that much information more than that. But I think there's some things we can extrapolate from even that brief, you know, description is that if he was responsible for attack plotting in Europe, he most likely was on or member of the Islamic State's Al-Farouk uh, regional office, um, which these regional offices are sort of the newish Islamic State, you know, administrative design. Following the collapse of the, you know, territorial caliphate in 2017, IS kind of restructured around so-called regional offices. And what these offices do is sort of act as middle managers, or, you know, sort of, you know, globalizes their central command structure. Uh, that puts leadership positions around the world that helps coordinate and, you know, facilitate Islamic State operations and activities around the world without actually having to be directly, you know, coordinated from Iraq and Syria, even though we all know that, you know, to a certain degree that still happens. Um, but the Al-Farouk office is responsible for, you know, Turkey and Europe. Um, it used to be based in Turkey, but I think the, it's now largely based in Syria. Uh, and a lot of people that 
the U.S. is you know certainly going after in the last few months um, are involved in that office. So it's very clear that you know that regional office is probably more than likely engaged in you know active plotting in Europe. Uh, the U.S. said that this guy was responsible for plotting attacks against officials or dignitaries. You know, in quotes. You know, again, vague description. Um, but it's clear that you know IS is not you know done with plotting in Europe. Yeah, and you know, I, I think you're right, Caleb. In the the way you're reading between the lines here, it, it's very likely he is a member of the Alpha Root Regional Office. By the way, those regional offices that was detailed by the United Nations sanctions and monitoring team uh, when under Edmund Fitton, our friend Edmund Fitton Brown. Um, that was just fascinating information in those reports. We we highly recommend if you're interested in these topics, read those UN reports. They come out, it's, it's every six months. Is that right, Caleb? It's every three months or every six months, I believe. I believe it's um, every six months. Every six, that's what I thought. And um, yeah, the, so that always interesting to get that those pieces of the puzzle. And and I, I agree with you. And you you had mentioned something too, you know, that there really isn't much out there about him. And that was the same for the some of the named individuals that CENTCOM has either killed or captured over the last several years. It just shows how little you know the Islamic State does seem to be. You know, I guess this is the next wave of leadership who's not as well known, who's not there? These aren't the public figures, right. but these are, doesn't make them any less dangerous. I believe an official said that either in the official statement or to VOA that um, this guy is the new generation of Islamic State leadership. Oh. He's not from you know the the old Iraq War days. He's he's newer. Um, so I, you're right on the money with that. Um, and not even you know unnamed or these vaguely named individuals over the last few years. Just in the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, just, I think last week they did a raid on a Yemeni IS official in eastern Syria. Again, they named him. No one really ever heard of the guy, but yet, you know, obviously significant enough for a CENTCOM to go after him. Well, and think about this too. That raid, like you, as you noted, wasn't in Idlib or, or in northeastern Syria. That was in Aleppo. The U.S. took a great risk in sending special operations forces that deep into Syria in order to go after this guy. Um, I think that tells you just how great of a threat they they viewed him. Uh, something goes wrong in Aleppo, which is you know look the U.S. forces. If you look at a map, wish we could wish we could show you one, but this is a podcast on the radio. Aleppo is on the uh, the, the far west coast of of Syria. We're not operating from there. It is possible the U.S. conducted this possibly from the sea. That may be more likely, but the the where the U.S. forces are operating are basically out of northeastern Syria. That's where they're based. Again, it's possible this raid was conducted another way, but even looking at a map one way or another, they're going they're going into uh, an area of Syria where that is a if there was a problem, if a helicopter went down, if a soldier seriously injured or or, or killed in one of these attacks, there's if things go bad in this type of raid. Uh, it's a much more difficult recovery for them. Right. So hats off to the guys who did this raid. Great job, guys. Um, uh, it takes a lot of courage to do these things. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I just think this is just, you know, we talk about the, or not we, you and I, we never talk about it in this terms, but we keep hearing the Islamic State's defeated. Well, no, they lost their physical caliphate. They've, um, sure, they're certainly set back. But when you see guys like that, raids like this occurring in areas like this, it really belies the point that there, the notion that the Islamic State has been defeated. Right. I mean, just a quick, you know, clarifying point. Aleppo's not necessarily on the coast. It is northwest Syria, um, but 
where this raid took place is more yeah. close to Turkey, I would say. So yes. it's more likely they flew from either you know the base in the desert or the base in Deir Ezzor or Hasaka. Um, but either way, Aleppo was like situated between you know these Turkish-backed factions and then you know the the regime, like the Assad regime controls significant parts of Aleppo as well. Um, so they had to get through, you know, the regime. If if something went wrong, you know, the regime would be there. The you know who knows what they would do. You have all these Turkish-backed mercenaries, essentially what they are. Who knows what they would do? And then you have the jihadis, which are situated between you know HTS, which is you know Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, the, the former Al Qaeda affiliate. Um, but then you also have obviously a small Islamic State faction. Uh, Al Qaeda is is in Aleppo, so I mean it's 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 a mess of like all these different factions. They had to you know bravely put troops on the ground, just like they'd have to do for you know Baghdadi and you know Abu yep. Ibrahim in in Idlib. Yeah, and you could understand the risk taking with Baghdadi and 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 Ibrahim, right? So right? it's essentially I mean, on the same level of, of that. When this guy is not the the caliph, he's just a, you know a high level official responsible for plotting, but obviously significant enough to put boots on the ground. Yeah, and um, there's also another factor here. I don't know enough to know where the Russian air defense is set up here, but um, in in Syria, but we do know Russia does operate air defense. The Israelis have to have to deconflict with the Russians when launching raids in the south. So if you have, you, you know, there's another layer there um, and uh, of risk, right? If the U.S. is deconflicting with Russia, what if the Russians really don't want to? What if they pass that information to the wrong people? So um, again, a lot of speculation there in that last point, but this just goes to show the complexities of operating in uh, conducting an operation like that in this region. This isn't a drone strike. This isn't an airstrike or a cruise missile. This is boots on the ground from helicopters. It's a whole nother level of complexity, risk. And I think one last point to make on like IS in Syria before we transition to AQ in Syria is that with all these raids happening, you know, not only just in eastern Syria, but now northwestern Syria, then also you had the last caliph killed in southern Syria. Pretty good argument can be made that most of the Islamic State's leadership or, you know, this high-level leadership is in Syria. Yeah. Um, you know, U.S. still has troops in Iraq, but yet no real operations are going against the Islamic State in Iraq. I don't know if that's because some sort of, you know tacit agreement with the Iraqi government or whoever, but it's very clear that all the big-named Islamic State officials yes. being killed or captured are in Syria. Yeah, there, so the U.S. is conducting raids in Syria, so the last, the, the Central Command, U.S. Central Command has been issuing statements, monthly statements, noting these raids, and there are saying the, the the bulk of these raids are taking place in Syria, but I haven't seen, like as you noted, Caleb, I... And I well, if they're doing raids in Iraq, it's definitely not capturing high-level high individuals, and that's I think that's the significant thing there. Yep, that's 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 it exactly. And all right, let's pivot to our next point, Caleb. Uh, there was a designation uh, late last week, or is it early this week? Maybe my time of uh, I believe it was late last week. <laughs> yeah, my sense of time is just compressed. Since COVID, ahead. man, time does not it's not real. Like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and launch in on Sami already. While we're talking about you know Syria, it's important to remember remember that you know. It's not just the Islamic State. Al-Qaeda is still also very much in Syria, you know, maybe to a lesser degree. Um, they certainly have had their issues with HTS, um, but they're still there. They're still operating. They're still conducting operations. They're still trying to conduct operations elsewhere. Um, and, you know, within this, you know, realm, uh, the U.S. designated a Al-Qaeda in Syria leader named Sami al-Aradi. Um, you know, he's certainly 
a central figure within Al-Qaeda's new uh, ideologue um, cadre, I would say. Um, he features prominently in propaganda and, you know, rhetoric being put out by Al-Qaeda Central uh, through their Asahab, you know, propaganda arm. Um, but he's also an ideologue and senior commander of Haras Adin, which Haras Adin is Al-Qaeda's new, uh, new-ish, I should say, you know, actual branch in Syria. It splintered off from HTS after HTS disavowed Al-Qaeda uh, and is formed of all these Al-Qaeda loyalists with their own varying degrees of history and connections with Al-Qaeda proper. Um, so Samuel Arady is, is, is an Al-Qaeda loyalist. Um, Zawahri himself, before Zawahri's death uh, last year, you know, quoted Samuel Arady on at least two occasions in, in propaganda. So that should show you how much, you know, importance this guy does have within, you know, Al-Qaeda global, you know, messaging and rhetoric and whatever. Um, but he's now designated. Um, and I think it still shows that, you know, the U.S., we still views Al-Qaeda as a significant force inside Syria, um, enough to be, you know, blacklisted like this. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would argue guys like Samuel Arady, uh, these ideologues, these are the ones that provide fuel for Al-Qaeda to conduct its operations, its recruiting. They need religious justification, fatwas to make things happen. They need to make the arguments and the propaganda to reach out to, to would-be recruits and, and convince donors. He should be at the top of the targeting list uh, for certain. Um, and look, as far as al-Qaeda in Syria, um, it's Haris al-Din. Uh, the United Nations estimates they have between 2,000 and 2,500 We've discussed this on the podcast. Could be lower. I, I mean, it, it could it could be higher, right? It could we be just higher, don't but know. HDS has done a number on limiting AQ. Um, although obviously Harassadine still exists, so who knows what the actual numbers are? Um, yeah. But there is a lot of tension there. That was one of Al Qaeda's, I would say, great failures after the Islamic State is the the situation with HTS. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at we've talked about this in the past, and my point in bringing up the numbers is. That's, no matter what uh, Hares al-Din's, the number they have, if that estimate is close to accurate, and I could, I have no way of knowing. Again, you can you can double that number or you could have it, and it's still a significant presence in an area that is essentially a no-go zone. But, uh, you, you know, I and I'm not going to belabor this point. Yes, uh, you know, al-Qaeda weathered the death of bin Laden and the split with the Islamic State relatively well in most of its theaters, but not in Syria and Iraq. It was a major loss for Al-Qaeda. Um, some people will hang this on Zawahiri. Maybe, maybe not. I would argue the, the tensions between what was then Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then became the Islamic State in Iraq existed while bin Laden was there. And we certainly can't build a time machine and resurrect bin Laden and see if he would have weathered it better. Um, but it's always been a difficult, difficult situation there. And, um, yeah, it's just a, that theater, definitely a major, major loss for Al-Qaeda. And I, I think, you know, the last point on this is that, you know, Haras Adin is still important, not only in, in the ideological sense, but operational sense for Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Um, the last UN report, again, shout out to the UN's, you know, sanctions monitoring team. Uh, they noted that Saif al-Adil is giving direct orders to Haras Adin. Saif al-Adil being uh, who pretty much everyone expects or assumes to be the new, you know, overall emir of Al-Qaeda after the death of, of Zawahri. Um, so the fact that he's giving direct orders, maybe from Iran, that's where, you know, the U.S. and the U.N. think Saif al is, or elsewhere, either way, he's giving direct orders to this branch in Syria, 
which should show the significance that this, you know, branch that has had its issues and troubles, you know, finding a, a good space to operate in, in Syria is still getting those direct orders. Um, so see where that goes from there. Certainly they're trying to expand and, and do things still from Syria. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, you know, down, but not out is, uh, and that seems to be the theme for both Al Qaeda and the Islamic state, you know, across the board in some places they're, they're up and running, but, uh, you know, it's the ebb and flow of jihad as you, I, and Tom Jocelyn have always talked about. Oh, and uh, kudos to our friend Tom Jocelyn, colleague Tom Jocelyn, for his work on Samuel Rady. Uh, it significantly influenced uh, Caleb in my report on, on this. Uh, yeah, great reporting by Tom. He identified him very early on. And you had mentioned the age, you know, Harris uh, Aldean as being a new group. You look back, it's five years ago, Kate. Yeah, newish. <laughs> right? It's just, this is where I start getting into that time compression. I'm like, I had last week, five years. Uh, who knows anymore? Well, uh, let, let's, let's uh, take the opportunity to move on to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the, um, the fun of jihad that's going on there. Um, so you, you had pointed this out to me. I've been following it, but it's just sort of going on in the background in my brain, but in, uh, in Pakistan, we'll start there. The movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, a group that was uh, Al Qaeda helped form. And if, um, you go back to the bin Laden documents years ago, this is something Tom and I had drawn out. Um, uh, Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda were giving direction to the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan on its founding charter and how to recruit and then warning it not to poach from Al Qaeda's cadres and in, 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 uh, in the tribal areas and such. But the movement in Taliban in Pakistan, another group that's had its ups and downs, its ebbs and flows, it's, um, it's, uh, it's on the upswing now. And um, uh, it's been recruiting uh, some of these small groups throughout the, the what is now known as Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, formerly the Northwest Frontier Province, and the federally administered tribal agencies, which, um, which included uh, our fun places like North and South Waziristan, where al-Qaeda regrouped. So, Caleb, give, give us a little background on what's been happening there, the recruiting of these groups. Quick caveat for everyone, I don't follow this region as closely as Bill, but you know, to the best of my estimation, it looks like at least eight groups from across Pakistan, from KPK to Baluchistan in the south, um, have joined TTP so far this year, like literally just this year, which you know, total of the last three years, that means at least 30 of these small little, you know, armed factions or groups or whatever you want to call them have joined the TTP, you know, literally since 2020. Um, so it's very clear that, you know, the TTP is, you know, as you put it, you know, putting the band back together and more because um, they have certainly got, you know, some groups to rejoin them that previously left during all, the, all their disagreements and internal squabbles. Um, but then you have these other groups that never been part of TTP before joining them. And again, I think groups is in quotations. Some of these appear to just be like clan militias yeah. or tribal militias. They're not necessarily like uniformed groups or flagged groups, but uh, definitely armed factions joining the TTP regardless. Yeah, and, and a quick point on that, Caleb. So there's a lot of what they call independent Taliban groups that were operating, particularly in the tribal areas. And they they stayed independent from, as well as, and you're correct, the, the tribal uh, militias, things like that. But some of these are these groups of independent Taliban that um, they, they, they stayed independent from the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan 
in order to de-conflict with the Pakistani state because the TTP or movement of the Taliban in Pakistan was at war, is at war with the Pakistani state. But what this is starting to tell us, in, in my estimation, is that they're picking a side now, that they think that what the that that the, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan is on the upswing. Perhaps they're being influenced or threatened to join. But this has been a very effective tactic for the TTP in the past to either push groups to join them, to threaten groups to join them, or even just convince them, convince them that they're they're the right answer. So um, it's increasing the combat power on the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, certainly. And I'm going to uh, comment real quickly on I, I've seen commentary about how the Pakistanis, you know, with the revival of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, uh, I'll, I'll give you a real brief history here. Um, the, it was formed in 2007. By 2011, it took over large areas, took over all the tribal agencies, and even even um, established districts within what was then uh, Northwest Frontier Province. It moved to within 50, I'm sorry, 60 miles of Islamabad before the Pakistani military actually cracked down on them, uh, beat them back, and then there was a leadership dispute after Hakimullah Massoud was killed. Um, the, the TTP made a mistake and pointed, uh, Mullah Nazir, who also known as Mullah, um, Mullah Radio, this guy, the ultimate pirate Taliban. I mean, this guy was crazy. He was, you know, against polio vaccinations, even though Taliban leaders, children were dying of polio. Um, but he was a, a divisive figure. He was outside the Masood clan, which was based in South Waziristan prim primarily, which was, and they were the traditional leadership of the TTP. Anyway, that led to divisions um, after the, the U.S. made a mistake and killed Mozir. It's probably should have kept this one argument where I would say, keep this guy alive. He was the best thing happening for us and the Pakistanis. Um, and once they got new leadership, they, as Caleb noted, they put the band back together. Now they're starting to, to conduct attacks. And they've killed probably about a thousand Pakistani civilians, police and soldiers. And I'm seeing people comment now, well, the Pakistani state won't abide by this. They won't they won't stand for this. My argument is, is the Pakistani state stood by when hundreds of thousands, or I would say over 100,000 of their soldiers and civilians were killed by sponsoring the Afghan Taliban, which in turn sponsored the Pakistani Taliban. The Pakistani state knew this was happening. The Afghan Taliban is still sheltering the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. And um, if we, you know, and the Pakistani state likes the Afghan Taliban in power because that's their strategic depth. That's what matters the most. And if you think that the Pakistani state is, is, isn't going to tolerate a thousand civilians killed, it tolerated a hundred thousand of civilians and soldiers and policemen killed. They'll look the other way as this is happening in order to maintain those ties with the Afghan Taliban. Right. And I think that's one of the main points here with, you know, the TTP on their steady revival here of, you know, Pakistan's cynical double game that they've played is really only hurting Pakistani civilians. Like it is the worst crime, I think, of that this government, you know, is is holding their citizens in such contempt that they're allowing them to die like this. Um, and I, I don't know how you go from there. Um, I mean, of course, they they are technically fighting the TTP. They they're certainly factions of them they do not like, but still, it, this is only happening because of their support for the for the Afghan Taliban. I mean. TTP operates on both sides of the border. They're they're not only in Pakistan, but they're also operating in Afghanistan, and they have for a long time. Um, and I think that's you know certainly the the best 
segue I can think of turning to the mess that's now in Afghanistan. And one quick point on this, unless you think Caleb and I are um, are off the mark on this point, I do the John Batchelor show um, uh, weekly and Hussein Haqqani, who's the former Pakistan's former ambassador to the U.S., who's now no longer uh, – he's an American citizen now because he's been driven from Pakistan because of his criticism of the government. He says the exact same thing as Caleb and I, the Pakistani state – is more interested in strategic depth in Afghanistan than it is the the uh, welfare of its own decision, uh, its own citizens. So, um, yeah, Hussein, no greater authority on that than than Hussein Haqqani. Um, we're not making this up. This is something that we've observed. And yeah, we'll move on to the um, to Afghanistan. Some, you know, the Taliban is in full control there. Uh, I just saw a report that they're looking to expand their military and security forces by one third. And keep in mind, this is all happening as their people are starving. Um, there's famine, there, you know, the drought throughout Afghanistan, and the Afghan military wants to pump in more money to their security forces when they're in, I would argue, dominant position within Afghanistan. You have an Islamic state terrorist insurgency that that conducts pinprick attacks compared to what the Taliban was doing to the U.S. and Afghan NATO and Afghan government. And then you have a a group of scattered resistance groups. They're nascent, I would call them. There's three main resistance groups. It's the National Resistance Front. That is the Tajik, Panjshiri-based resistance. That was the last holdouts to the Taliban in Panjshir province. Then you have a group called the Afghanistan Freedom Front, this is primarily based of uh, Afghan military commanders, and it's pr- primarily Pashtun. Um, and then you have a group called the Afghan Resistance Front. Again, former, mo- mostly former military officers, uh, a, a grouping of different um, uh, ethnicities as far as I can tell. Um, these groups are trying to uh, put up resistance to the Taliban. As we saw with the National Resistance Front in Afghanistan late last year, or actually last summer through the fall, they um, put up a strong fight against the Taliban, but the Taliban mustered their resources, moved in, and crushed them. Um, where now they're, they, they've actually said they're changing their tactics to – they were trying to control some territory in Panjshir. Now it looks like they're moving towards a more of a guerrilla activity, which is, which is wise. Um, but I think for these groups to, um, to have a, any type of effect, they're going to have to start working together. Uh, Afghanistan is filled with uh, – shall we say, uh, personality and tribal and and ethnic conflicts where it's part of the problems that existed with the Afghan government um, and why it was difficult for it to remain cohesive. They have to put us, put this all aside, and they're going to need some funding from foreign governments. The Biden administration's official policy, as stated by a State Department official last year, was it does not support any armed resistance, but it... Um, says that they should these groups should negotiate with the Taliban because negotiating with the Taliban worked so well last year or two years ago, right? Caleb or all over all those years. So that's um that's one point. You got anything to add to that, Caleb? I know I went on a long diatribe. That that is all you, my man. <laughs> yeah. So you know this, you know people think the war in Afghanistan is over. No, we're just in a new phase. Uh, it's it's the Taliban. There's Al Qaeda is uh, firmly established there. Yes, the Islamic State is a threat, but they're a threat to the Taliban. We certainly shouldn't be working with the Taliban um, to oppose the Islamic State. Sometimes, you know, you don't work with terrorists to fight terrorists, uh, I guess, unless they're the uh, PKK or the uh, P5 
People's Worker Party in northeastern Syria, but that's a different story. Um, what I've objected to greatly. And then another point on Afghanistan, um, their Cong uh, the, I believe it's the Homeland Security Committee is holding congressional hearings on Afghanistan. Uh, I'm a little mixed on this. Um, I, I certainly like the efforts uh, to, you know, I, there's certainly a lot to be criti critical of the Biden administration's withdrawal policy. But I, I'm getting the impression a lot of Congress's, um, or the, the House's uh, efforts here really just mainly to paint the Biden administration in a bad light. You can do that all day long. We have, as we did with the Trump administration's negotiations with the Taliban or the Obama administration's um, surge, a cynical surge in Afghanistan where more troops died in a three-year period than they did in the rest of the 20-year conflict or the 17 other years, um, knowing that we weren't going to see it through, knowing that it wasn't going to work. Um, I, I just believe I'm a believer that these these any type of hearing should look at the big problem. You could make all the criticisms you like because the Biden administration ultimately ex executed withdrawal, and that policy was clearly a failure. Not um, and it was a catastrophe. It was uh, chaotic. Un unlike uh, you know, it was funny to see the um, Pentagon spokesman uh, John Kirby stand up there, or is he the National Security? I, whatever he's an, he's a spokesman stand up there and, and tell us that he didn't see a chaotic withdrawal. I mean, I, I do hope the room bursted out in laughter with that. But the, again, there's a lot to be critical here. I mean, did on, you see the, the video sides. of like the people falling from the plane? Yeah, or, you know, mobs rushing the gate, throwing their children over barbed wire fences and... Um, yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't have to even look at the, you know, the suicide attack uh, that occurred at, toward the very end to think that was chaotic. It was just absolute mayhem. I mean, they looked the soldiers that, and Marines that were on the ground that, that held that at bay. Uh, it's amazing that more people weren't killed during, during that. So it was, uh, they did a fantastic job, but to say that wasn't chaos. I mean, you know, we all have eyes, right? One of the witnesses in, in today's testimony today being uh, April 18th, um, I always find it humor, humorous to see who's being called. I mean, th this, this individual got Afghanistan famously wrong. He predicted that the, um, the Afghan government and military would hold out um, for quite some time. He basically viewed it as an even contest. And, uh, I, you know, look, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I, I predicted it, once the withdrawal was announced, I predicted that it would be over by the end of the summer. And I was actually a little too optimistic there because it ended August 15th. So we technically had about three weeks left, um, but or I'm sorry, five weeks, five, six weeks before the end of the summer. But it was painfully obvious if you just took the blinders off. And, you know, seeing a witness like like that called is um, just, you know, just to, to me, just shows just how sometimes unserious these uh, these hearings can be. Anything that on that, Caleb? Uh, again, another diatribe from me. <laughs> again, this is this is all you. This is this is my show. Don't worry, we're getting to the Sahel, and that's going to be all you, my man. <laughs> <laughs> One more point, um, folks. If you haven't watched PBS Frontline documentary "America and the Taliban," uh, you could watch it online. Uh, they've, the next episode's coming out April 25th. Um, it's a really good look. I don't agree with everything in there and, uh, we may do an episode to cover it there, but there's a lot of good in there. It explains how military political leaders and the, 
the uh, the State Department and the ICE intelligence community how wrong everyone got it. Um, and, you know, and details problems with the Afghan government and the Afghan military and does a really fascinating job of showing the tal- how committed the Taliban was to this fight and how well they, they, they've read the, uh, the, the political and the military situation in Afghanistan. To me, that's the most phenomenal part about it. Again, I don't agree with everything in there, but I would say my disagreements are on the margins. Um, and it's certainly worth watching. And there, there's a scene in there, or not a scene, there's like a montage of Taliban suicide attacks at one point. I think this was in the first episode. Um, and it really got my blood boiling, just seeing the, you know, they're sending people out and it was just explosion after explosion and just, you know, knowing how this all worked, you just, it just, anyway, it, it got me upset. It's getting me upset right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't recommend that enough. So with that, we will move on to the Sahel. Caleb, let's, I'm going to let you take the reins here and I'll just chip in. When <laughs> right. Tit for tat here, I guess this is, this is sure. my, my show now. Fair enough, right? It's your show too. So I think it's important to point out that in the Sahel that, you know, a lot of the times we talked about on this podcast is, you know, the supremacy of Al-Qaeda's JNIM, the, the group for support of Islam and Muslims. It's it's their main branch in the Sahel in West Africa. And they do, I mean, indeed control or influence or is the main actor in most of the Sahel and in most of what, much of West Africa. But IS Sahel has sort of gone under the radar and is now poised to make some big moves. And I think, you know, the main thing is they're they're poised to effectively control the majority of Mali's northern Minaka region, or Manaka, as some people say, um, which, again, if we had a map up, uh, you know, it'd be easy to show you guys, but it's in the extreme north of Mali, so it's very desert, it's it's the actual Sahel, um, it's very rural, um, there's really only a couple main cities in there, um, one being the town of Manaka, and, you know, IS Sahel has effectively routed JNIM from the majority of the rural areas of that that province. Um, it is IS Sahel, you know, destroying JNIM's cadres. I mean, JNIM put up a you know a fierce fight for control over this province. JNIM even launched suicide car bombs against IS Sahel during these fights. I mean, it, it was massive, and it wasn't just JNIM. JNIM was fighting alongside you know various Tuareg. And Doasak, Doasak being the small little ethnic group in Manaka, you know, Tuareg and Doasak militias against IS Sahel, but IS Sahel is you know so far one, um, and this is significant because now it's mainly just the town of Manaka holding out against IS Sahel, uh, and you know there are UN forces there, there are Wagner Russian Wagner forces in in Manaka, um, but. They're only operating inside the town of Manaka. They don't come out of the race. They don't do anything offensively against IS Sahel. Um, so it, the province is effectively under the direct control or influence of IS Sahel. Um, and this is really their, their first large territorial gain in the Sahel. I mean, they've controlled certain portions of Mali and Burkina Faso and Niger before, but certainly never to this degree. Um, and, you know, I think this is a, a, a good point talking about their trans- transition as a, you know, a force to be reckoned with is that prior to this, you know, offensive in Manaka, which started last year, um, is they were mainly largely conducting, you know, just giant massacres against civilians in the region. I mean, they were killing hundreds of civilians at a time. Um, they were wiping out full Doasak, you know, locales in Manaka. I mean, it was, it was, bloody and brutal 
Um, and that's sort of why J&IM, this is a quick side point, that's sort of why J&IM got so heavily involved, is that part of Al-Qaeda's, you know, modus operandi is they portray themselves as, you know, this community defender or the local defender or someone that, you know, locals can work for and with and through. Um, so J&IM, you know, positions itself as sort of these protectors of these, of the Doasak um, and uh, Western Degree Tuareg, and they all sort of banded together against IS Sahel. Um, but IS Sahel just has really overpowered them. And it's surprising, somewhat surprising to see that Al-Qaeda, who historically has had dominance over much of northern Mali, is now losing pretty much an entire province. Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen if JNIM and their, their you know, tribal allies will mount another counteroffensive, or even if they can. Um, it's certainly not going to come from, from the UN or Wagner. Uh, France is gone, so they're not going to do anything. So really the only force that could really drive IS the hell out of Manaka is Al-Qaeda. So this is another, you know, large turning point, I think, for, you know, not only the West, but Africa of, you know, what do we do? Of Do we allow Al-Qaeda to be this sort of good force against IS the hell? Like, what do we do? This is a weird position to be in. You just read my mind, Caleb. I was going to say, do you think that Wagner and the and the, and the, the UN would sort of just stand on the sidelines as Al Qaeda, if Al Qaeda was able to organize a a battle? Would they? You know, it's just. And and another question I have for you: Do what do you attribute the Islamic State's success here in Manaka? I mean, is it? Do you think it's some type of regional dynamic? Is it possible across, you know, aid across the border from Burkina Faso and, and Niger? I, you know, I mean, this uh, is a, a long-standing thing that they've been engaged in in this region um, for the past like five years, maybe more. Where Al Qaeda and Islamic State Sahel have gone, you know, back and forth over influence and control over Manaka, and what they've been doing is pretty much playing the local inhabitants, the local tribes. Again, mainly being. Tuareg and Doasak and some other small, you know, other ethnicities against each other of whether or not, you know, supporting Al-Qaeda, supporting Islamic State, or, you know, when Jainaya makes a move that gets a Doasak militia or tribe on their side, Ayas Sahel might do a massacre against them for, you know, basically saying, how dare you stand against me? Um, when Doasak militias rose up to try to combat, you know, not only combat the Islamic State, but protect themselves, Again, the Islamic State would do these retaliatory massacres saying, you know, again, how dare you for standing up against me? Um, but at the same time, the Islamic State was doing that to other communities. They were, you know, getting other communities on their side. They were providing local services and governance for, you know, these other rural areas that, again, JNIM would try to get into, but didn't work. Um, so, again, just like these, these you know, tit for tat battles of local communities in Manaka that really just culminated in the Islamic State going full military force in the region. I mean, they've consolidated a lot of their their fighting force in that area now. So they're making it a strategic imperative to actually retake, or not retake, but take Manaka. Um, so again, it'd be interesting to see how this turns out. Uh, who's actually going to step in to stop it? You know, is it going to be JNIM? Does does the UN not do anything tacitly support Al-Qaeda for doing this? I mean, it, this is a mess and a half. Uh, and it, it's it's kind of surprising that it took this long for us to get this way when Mali, especially northern Mali, is, is I mean, the, the state forces really don't operate there. So it's mainly the UN and now, to a lesser degree, Wagner, but also JNIM and various Tuareg and other militias. So now we're seeing the you know ramifications of such a mess that the Islamic State is now 
effectively controlling an entire province. Yeah, and just for a little context, as you were going through this, I'm, I looked up the population for the Monaco region or the province. It, according to Wikipedia, you know, take that with a grain of salt. It's saying fifty-four thousand, about fifty-four thousand five hundred people. So several hundred uh, well-trained fighters from the Islamic State uh, could certainly make quite an impact in an area like this. You don't need a you don't need a massive force. They don't need tens of thousands of fighters. You know, think if they they put a thousand fighters in this area, um, who are well trained and well motivated and well armed, you could really make it make a difference. Right. I mean, it is a super rural area. It's one of Mali's newer provinces. It was separated from Gao, um, I believe, the last decade. But it's 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 still significant that this is a, a the largest territorial gain that the Islamic State Sahel has had in in its history, um, forming in 2015 after a split from other Al Qaeda. You know, affiliate or branches in in West Africa. Yeah, it's uh, it certainly uh, bears watching, Caleb. Uh, always interested in your analysis. Interesting conundrums for the world, man. Of like, yes. just like the Taliban and Islamic State, you know, Khorasan. It's like uh, the, the best CT force in Mali for this province is now Wudrawak Al Qaeda. Yeah, it's uh, this withdrawal has consequences, folks. Uh, the French decide to leave, and this is what you get. Um, you know, look, the, and we have to understand the U.S., the French, uh, the West can't police the world, but we just can't be naive about what we think we're leaving behind once the withdrawal. You know, we have to be wide-eyed uh, about what is very likely we're leaving behind. I don't think the French pretended that the, everything would be fine once they left. Uh, and also, they really didn't have a choice. They got booted as well, right, Caleb? Um Am I right about that? They, the, the, the Mali for the most part, yeah. The the yeah. current military regime in Bamako is not uh, the proest of French. Yeah, exactly. So you know now they're operating from Niger. Uh, so yeah, th this is what happens. So let's uh, to another beautiful um, oasis of calm, tranquility in Africa. We'll uh, we'll move over to Somalia and then we'll, we'll call it a day from there, Caleb. Unfortunately, that we'll have to cut it short after that. Um, let's talk about what's going on. They're in the next phase of, uh, well, about to be in the next phase, about to be in the next phase. Go ahead. So go. I think we talked about this several times on the podcast already. Again, I know we had a break and people may have forgotten, but starting last September, the Somali government, uh, backed by these clan militias called Baal Weasley started this large counteroffensive against Shabab, uh, Al Qaeda's East African branch, um, in, in central Somalia. Um, and they've taken over, you know, a couple dozen villages, you know, have retaken some areas. Shabab has retaken those retaken areas, some of them. Um, but operations are continuing in the center, you know, again, back and forth between government control, Ma'a Weasley control, Shabab control, whatever. Um, but recently, in the last couple of weeks, Somali President Hassan Sheikh uh, announced that phase one, or, you know, these operations in the center, is going to end and be replaced by phase two which is operations in the country's south, um, which there's a little caveat here. Ahmed Badobe, who is sort of the, 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 the president of Somalia's Jubaland, which is like a sort of like Puntland in the north where it's a semi-autonomous region, but they have their own sort of military, paramilitary units. Madobe um, has already kind of a net, like launched these operations, you know, a few months ago, um, but these appear to be unilateral with Jubaland's own paramilitary forces. Um, phase two is going to incorporate federal troops from the Somali National Army. Um, but again, it's sort of already happening, and, and there's not really clear if the phase one 
troops are going to be moved down or there's going to be new deployments or if phase one is going to continue to a lesser degree. It's all up in the air right now. Um, but they are announcing a phase two to these these large counteroffensives. Um, but I think one point to make on moving it to the south is that Shabab really messed up in the center where, yeah, they had a lot of clan support, but they also pissed off a lot of clans. Um, and that's sort of why the Maoisley movement in the center was so effective or has been effective or rose up against them in the first place is that Shabab and their excessive taxation, their forced recruitment, their, you know, atrocities against these clans, uh, forced them against them. Um, you know, in the South, however, a lot of those clans are vehemently pro Shabab. Um, Shabab has done a good job of providing services down there. They, in many areas, they are the government. Um, so I, I think one question people need to be asking is how effective will this phase two be in Jubiland when the clan support is different than how it looks in the center. There's more pro Shabab clans in the South than there are in the center. Caleb, if I can interrupt you, and in, in, and in the center, it's really unclear how effective the operation. I mean, yeah, to, to be fair, it is very unclear. I mean, they've they've definitely have retaken villages, but Shabab has also retaken some of those villages. And the long-standing question there is going to be of because Shabab or because Somalia government, sorry, is heavily relying on the Maoisley to hold a lot of these villages. How effective is that going to be in the long run? I mean, you're going to have to support these villagers, these clan militias for. You know the long haul to be able to control these villages going forward. Um, so uh, you know, obviously, Shabab knows that you know, the international partners that are helping Somalia knows that. Um, so it's TBD on what it's going to look like in the future in the center. But for now, Shab- Somalia is claiming victory to whatever degree that looks like. And what did what did they say? Remember, we were discussing. Well, they're, this a they're claiming to have ago. killed like three thousand troops or three thousand fighters of Shabab, which. You know, people put their estimates at twelve thousand, which again we believe that's way too low. But let's just let's just play this this mind game here. Let's say that it is twelve thousand, and Sh- and Somalia killed three thousand Shabab fighters in this first first phase. You're telling me you killed a fourth of their entire force in since September. And how many are wounded? How many are just wounded to the point of taking off the battlefield? How many have been captured? Again, I don't want yeah. to disparage Somali because I think Somali is doing an important thing here. This is an important fight, and I, I, I support them wholeheartedly. But, is it, dude, like that's ridiculous numbers. <laughs> it doesn't help when – and look, we saw the Afghans do this. We saw the Iraqis do it. We've seen the U.S. military and intelligence community do this, inflate, you know, play the body count game. Um, and it defies logic when you look at their own estimates versus what they're claiming. And, and it really causes you to question. Yeah. yeah. It hurts their cause, especially like when you, when, okay, so just as, as an example, a couple of weeks ago, Shabab overran like an entire Somali military base. And Somalia claims that they, they repulsed it, it didn't happen, whatever. And then Shabab just releases photos of dozens of killed Somali troops. It, it's just, it does not help your case when you deny these things that are easily refutable by photo evidence. I mean, of course, Shabab could have used these photos from elsewhere, whatever. But like the point being is that you're only giving fodder to Shabab by playing these numbers games when you should be more upfront and you'll probably garner more international sympathy for your cause by being upfront in the first place. Look, if they, if they killed 500 Shabab fighters for real, or if that was the, you know, and said, hey, we killed, what I'm captured a thousand, you know, we estimate we killed and captured and wounded about 1,500, whatever the number. 
I would take that as a credible estimate, right? That sounds reasonable. To and that's me. that's good progress. Um, it's reasonable for, but yeah, making fantastic claims like uh, like this just really makes people like you and I who you know use our brains in in these certain instances to analyze this stuff. Yeah, it's just it's tough to take seriously. Not to harp on Smalley too much. This is like I I hope this, this is a, a problem across the board. We've seen it. Yeah, you know, we in, in Iraq we called it Iraqi math, and Afghanistan we called it Afghan math. And I mean, the U.S. is also Afghan. guilty of this in Vietnam. DoD math. They're guilty. U.S. is guilty of it in in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. So everyone does it. It's just like for independent or whatever analysts, it's really hard to to you know aggregate, disaggregate. You know what's real from from fake, um, but I think you know one important thing to talk about with you know sort of these new operations in Somalia is that Kenya, Ethiopia, and Djibouti have all announced they're going to send more troops to Somalia. Which the key thing being here is that they're going to be outside of the African Union control. So the African Union or the African Union training mission in Somalia, Atmos, already has troops from those three countries, along with Uganda and Burundi. Um, so these new troops are going to be part of a joint military force, according to Hassan Sheikh, um, and you know, th- implying that they're going to be offensively operating. But it's unclear what they're actually going to accomplish. I mean, these combined forces, I mean, these forces, tr- countries that already have troops there, Atmos and before at Amisom, a struggled against Shabab. Uh, you know, e- Ethiopia has deployed on numerous occasions you know, extrajudicial troops outside of a huge jurisdiction. Djibouti was already assisting smaller troops with heavy weaponry and logistics. So, you know, TBD again on that of what actually is going to be, you know, uh, accomplished here. Although more troops, I guess, theoretically could make a difference. Um, but it's just all of these additional deployments are part of the international effort to aid Somalia. U.S. and Turkey is also involved. Obviously, U.S. is doing airstrikes, I think, Based on Long War Journal's numbers, we've counted 15 U.S. airstrikes since these offensives started last September. Um, and I personally have, have tried to run down Turkish airstrikes in Somalia. Again, this is really difficult. Turkey, neither Turkey nor Somalia comment on these. So this is based on local reporting on brave individuals actually confirming it was Turkey. Um, at least 18 Turkish airstrikes have, have occurred in Somalia since September 2022. Um, in support of Somalia troops during these offensives. Um, and I think, you know, one question that we've asked ourselves, me and Bill have asked ourselves is, you know, is this a final push to allow these AU countries to disengage or is this actually a long-term effort to defeat Shabab? And I think it's both. I, I think that, uh, you know, the AU, all of Africa really, and even beyond, want to see Shabab defeated. I mean, I think that that's rather self-evident. But the AU has had, you know, numerous deadlines that they pushed back to withdraw from Somalia. Uh, they pushed it back at least three times in the past, you know, five years. Uh, so it, it's it, it could be as part of you know they want to see Shabab at a place where like AU can logically argue that they made a difference and effectively withdraw. I don't see why it's you know mutually exclusive here. Whether or not one is better than the other, I don't know. But certainly, I, I, I do think that this is a legitimate attempt to defeat Shabab. Um, but of course, and we need to make mention that Shabab is still conducting attacks against Somali positions, as mentioned earlier, including in the central regions. So uh, we'll see. Uh, this is going to be a long-term struggle, whether or not 
you know, Somalia politicians want to admit that. They've been harping the, the victory, you know, trumpet for a long time. Uh, more so in the last few weeks, so they've sort of announced this phase two. Um, so that may not age well. Um, they may need to tone down their rhetoric. Yeah, I think that's, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Caleb. And, you know, not to agree with you, just to agree with you. I think they want to defeat Shabab. Um, but I think we've seen indications over the last several years, and particularly that the African countries really are looking to disengage. I mean, I think there's, some countries are there just because they're getting paid. Is that right, Caleb? Yeah, there are definitely at least two, but one definitely is there because the, the payment they're receiving from the EU and effectively the United States, which the United States pays a lot of the EU um, payroll there, um, is, is more than they could ever make in their home country. Um, and to a, to a degree, I, I, I don't blame them for doing that. Like that is, If that's the best way that you're going to get your soldiers paid, um, then I, I guess do it. But they're going to have to live with the consequences of this is also a country in a that whose zone of influence or zone of control in Somalia is a Shabab hot zone that gets attacked all the time. Um, and they have to deal with that repercussion for getting paid. Yeah, it's a tough way to get paid. And I mean, look, if it's going to lead to beating back or even holding back Shabab, that's great. But, you know, I, I do think that uh, I think to a degree, some of these some of these countries are are tiring of this conflict and. If this if this is being viewed internally by these countries and even and the Somali government is sort of the final Hail Mary, I think that's a mistake. Uh, you know, again, I'm not trying to denigrate their their attempts, their efforts to defeat Shabab, but you just have to be realistic about this. This is, you know, given the resources that are being thrown in here, it's minimal resources from the US, from African countries. It's I find it highly unlikely, just given the history, not just of in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Yemen and in the Sahel, but in Somalia itself, how many times have the African Union and Ethiopia and the United States um, intervened to beat back Shabab only to see them, you know, come back to power? No, and I, I think to the point of some countries wanting to leave Somalia, I Voice of America just had an excellent report on this, that uh, the official estimates for how many African Union peacekeepers have died in Somalia is roughly around 3,500, and the majority of those being from Uganda and Burundi. Um, 3,500 since 2007, I might add. So that's it's, it's roughly about the same as, I mean, the U.S. lost 2,400 in Afghanistan, roughly 2,400, I believe. Yeah, that's, that sounds in, right. In a 20-year period. I think with NATO, it's over three thousand. Yeah, so, so if you want so to roughly the, the same in a fifteen-year period for Somalia, yeah, yeah, it's it's a comparable war. It's a long war. Um, now, look, I mean, you could parse those numbers over fifteen years, and it's not a large number of casualties. But the you know, I think it's. It's difficult to commit to a long-term fight like this, particularly with some countries when it may not be in your, you know, in your actual interest to do so. If you're just getting paid, that's a, it's a tough motivation to, to stay in the fight. Yeah. So we'll see what happens, whether or not AU pushes back the withdrawal date again, you know, TBD, TBD. Yeah, certainly. Look, and, you know, I always hate to, to get the impression that we're shitting all over the effort. We certainly aren't. We're just looking at this with a critical yeah, eye. No, definitely want to make that that point. Definitely not shitting on any of these countries. Like I, they're, I mean, they're doing 
important work and like actually trying to make a difference. You know, I wish them the best. And, you know, I think you and I both certainly want to see them succeed. It's just, you know, trying to look at this realistically. Yeah. Just, you know, you, if you don't approach this, these fights with a open mind with a, and, and approach them, as you said, realistically, I think you're destined to, to fail in these fights. So we certainly hope, uh, we wish the best for our Somali friends. They're fighting an evil enemy for certain. These are people who torture, abuse, suicide bombers. It's it's horrific. And a global enemy. I mean, let's not forget yep. the Shabab on two occasions have had members arrested taking flight lessons, you yeah. know, ostensibly for, you know, aviation plots. Oh, they detonated a bomb on, on a plane. And that. It was in Somalia. But they Somalia. definitely, yeah. like, they are not just a, sm- a threat to Somalia or Kenya or Uganda or elsewhere. It's, it's They're a global threat. Yeah, and then but that that attack they believed was a dry run. Well, not a dry run, but a that was why we got all the you know the shutdowns. Uh, why you can't take your computer? And they believed that that was part of a global plot. Or I don't know if, if like to, people remember. I think I think that was twenty sixteen of like when you had to go to an airport and like they explicitly asked you to make sure that like, your computer turns on. Like, yeah, that was that was a direct result of that plot. Yeah, because if you know you put the on button and it blew up at that. Uh, that counter where it's packed with people that would, I guess would be better than an airplane. Hey, I, I'm not going to tell TSA how to do their job, but I could probably do it better. <laughs> That's it. I'm probably going to get the, get strip searched and the rubber glove treatment on my next flight. I should just get my mouth shut. Oh, well. All right, Caleb, I guess that's a good place to wrap up for us today. We'll, we'll hit the Islamic State Central Africa province and some other uh, developments on our next podcast uh, coming up soon. Yeah. Caleb. Thanks, as always. Uh, always a pleasure to speak with you on Generation Jihad. Thank um, you again. I mean, obviously, again, co-host slash now editor, Longwood Journal, but uh, still going to say thanks. Onward and upward, Caleb. Always a pleasure, my friend. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.